we're about relationships over technology. So we're in many ways a tech company, but we build the technology on the relationships. Welcome to Cause and Purpose, the show about the leaders, innovators, and change agents working on the front lines to solve some of the world's greatest social challenges. I'm Mike Spear, and our guest today is a familiar figure in the Cause and Purpose world, Chief Data Officer at Giving Tuesday, Woodrow Rosenbaum. Giving Tuesday needs no introduction, and Woodrow picks right up where he left off last season, talking about the nature of generosity around the world, what nonprofit organizations should be doing right now to set themselves up for long-term success, and why it's so important for funders to understand the impact created by the organizations they support. We talk a little bit about artificial intelligence and about the importance of collaboration with other stakeholders that align with your mission. Woodrow always delivers compelling insights with sophistication and class, so you may want to grab a pen and paper for this one. Hope you enjoy. Woodrow, thanks so much for coming back on the show, man. It's been it's been two years. Uh, it's good to hear you, your voice again. It's amazing that it's already been two years. It's good to be here, Mike. We covered a ton of stuff in our last episode, and you know, some time has passed since then. But it still holds up as one of my favorites. I think I think we covered a lot of ground, and I really enjoyed the insights you shared. One of the things that stood out when I listened back to it, though, is towards the end we actually kind of started making a few predictions about like the next 10 years of philanthropy. And I realized that in the intervening time, a lot's happened. COVID has sort of like started to wane. Russia invaded the Ukraine. Crypto has sort of risen. NFTs became a thing and that sort of crashed. And then of course, artificial intelligence wasn't really part of the conversation then. So it's pretty obvious at this point, you know, things didn't really go the way that we had thought they would. So I would just love to start with an update from yourself, uh, what you've been up to over the past couple of years, how things have evolved for Giving Tuesday since then, and what you're really focused on now. It's certainly been a, uh, a very volatile period. And I, and I think for, in a lot of ways, that kind of volatility and unpredictability is probably here to stay. And at the same time, you know, we see some, some of the things that we were looking at when you and I first spoke, we have a much better sense of that now. And, and for example, the just the importance of all the ways that people give and the fact that that is quite diverse and robust, in fact, you know, that resilient to some of these more unpredictable events and situations within the greater ecosystem. But yeah, it's been, I think for nonprofits in particular, a really challenging period to navigate. And we're seeing a lot of encouraging signs and opportunities and also some renewed challenges that are, are are really at the forefront, I think, of where the sector is right now and how some of the things that were troubling indicators are now realities. And we need to really think about how we're going to navigate that. When, when we last spoke, we were actually seeing a spike in giving. So what are some of those things that you're seeing and uh, some of the opportunities as well? Yeah, I mean, when we look at 2020, it's a really important period, I think, to continue to examine because we had the only year in recent history where we saw an increase in the number of donors to nonprofits. And when we unpacked that year, we saw a lot of things that were driving that, but essentially giving moments were driving participation. And that was COVID related in response to kind of immediate need. Uh, it was sort of tangentially COVID related in response to the, the, the ripple effect of the pandemic, the first year of the pandemic, but also other things. Racial justice drove a lot of participation, of course, Giving Tuesday, which is even in that year of lift, the biggest day for donor acquisition. So we saw this reversal of the multi-year trend of fewer people giving. It wasn't all good news. Like it was a very winners or losers situation in 2020. And what we've seen That's since right. then is a very, very sharp return to the previous trend of fewer donors giving more money. And that was the story right through the first three quarters of 2022. And our concern in 2021 and into the following year was we know that that organizations need a broad base of support to be resilient, that too many eggs in one basket is not good, uh, that it leaves us vulnerable to economic shifts because those larger donors are more responsive to that economic change. And so the last quarter of 2022 really saw that risk become a reality. We saw, and the result was not just fewer donors, a lot fewer donors, 10% down year over year, but also less money. 
And and that's where we are now. With we we had too many eggs in that one basket, and that basket is got holes in it. So now that's the reality. Is that you know we have this system that was over reliant on large donor stewardship, and the result of that is is the current risk. The key thing though, and and this is where I think it's important to think about this, not in terms of we are sort of unwitting victims of economic uh, modes that we don't really have any control over. This, this result is not inevitable. So then really the question is, well, what do we do about it? I mean, part of our objective this year is to be more prescriptive about what those opportunities are. In our latest look back at 2022, in that report, we've really tried to put in some some ideas of what this means for how organizations can address some of these risks and and opportunities in the market. There there are really important opportunities. We also have some projects ongoing that uh, that we're calling collectively insights to action, which is really about driving to what are the specific best practices, what is the difference between success and not. How can we? We're running some A/B experiments right now, so that by the time we're in the quote giving season we really are able to more directly inform. But I will tell you sort of strategically at the high level, I think the key thing is we cannot wait to get a broader base of support and engage more people in our missions. Like if waiting until the giving season and giving Tuesday is too late, we gotta be doing that right now. We have to be going into the last month of the year with an already more broadly engaged public in our missions so that we have that asset, that more diverse set of assets to rely on when we get into that period. And then the, the, the flip side of that would be that we can bolster the top end, I think, particularly with donor advised funds. There's more money in donor advised funds than ever before. They represent a proven opportunity to mitigate economic downturn across the sector. So I think you know what we're really saying is that grassroots engagement right now and a, a concentrated specific strategy to unlock some donor advised funds are it's kind of the 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 dual approach that i that we need to take and it's not just about mitigating the risk it's about the fact that we continue to leave money on the table even in times when times are tough maybe even especially when times are tough people are motivated to give we just need to be more open to more people being part of that mission what do you see as the major reasons for the decline and, and how are folks going to be able to reverse that? I don't think trust is the key problem that we need to solve for. But in particular, I think we need to think about how we engage in ways that that build trust differently than, than we have. So just to unpack that a little bit. First of all, yeah, trust in nonprofits and institutions as a whole is declining over uh, the longer period of time. But but trust in in charitable organizations is actually comparatively resistant or resilient to that eroding. And what we know is that having trust is not a driver of donation. You need to have trust to get the donation, but, it's, but we need to think about this more in terms of lack of trust is an obstacle. So people make emotional decisions to give. To some degree, this is an emotional act. And we know that urgency is the number one driver of donation intent. We know that a personal emotional connection is absolutely critical as a driver of the donation. Then people need to have permission to take the action they want to take. And for that, you need to have that foundation of trust. But it's actually not that difficult to get. And the good news is one of the ways you get that is by talking openly about the emotionally impactful stories of your mission not by throwing numbers at people. And I think that that's part of the challenge is that this over-indexing on trust as the issue leads us to messaging that is not inspiring. And that's a mistake. The impact data that is available is that, do they not care at all? Or is it important validation that builds trust once you have the emotional anchor planted? What's the role of, of that aspect of it? Well, I mean, I think part of the answer to that is you really got to segment, right? I mean, th there's no one answer for all donors, right? So having a little badge or an icon on a donation page is enough for some, right? Even if they don't know what that means or be, even if it is not necessarily meaningful, right? And for others, they're, they're more interested in how they're making an investment. One thing that I think is we need to recognize is that there is a correlation between sort of 
the donors that that think about this stuff and the value of their donation. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that that's the directionality of the causation, right? Like it's entirely possible that the more people invest in their charitable giving, the more likely they are to think about those things as opposed to it being driven the other way around, right? And this is why I think we haven't had a huge amount of success driving up numbers by by trying to drive people to more information. The other thing is that there is a negative correlation between people who say that it's really important to do your research and their likelihood of being a giver. So we know we can complicate the message, right? And that complication adds friction and that's not necessarily a good thing. It's, I think, better to think about this in terms of inviting lots of givers at whatever level they're at and then giving them opportunities to explore more information and and want to get more involved but not make that the sort of some kind of obstacle right when we start saying hey giving is complicated you got to worry about where you're giving and not all organizations are equal like those things might be empirically true but at the end of the day they're just going to add friction and and reduce the conversion rate so we need to get people give people an opportunity to explore rather than lecture them about how to think about their giving more intellectually it sounds like what you're saying is certain donors will sort of look at the data as rationale for not giving if they end up wanting to be cheap about it. Some for sure do. And, and, and you know, the, the, we definitely see that in our data, right? Like if the people who say it's important to do research into nonprofits are less likely to be generous, there is a correlation there. But like you can't take one approach. Different donors had different needs and expectations and some like to nerd out on the data so great that those donors should have an opportunity to do that giving tuesdays end of november beginning of december it's the kickoff to the holiday giving season traditionally but if we think ahead to like november october september august even beginning those conversations that's a long time to maintain engagement around giving how do you sort of think about that communications arc and keep people engaged over that period of time yeah, I mean, we need to engage a lot more. We, and and deseasonalizing giving, I think, presents one of the biggest opportunities we have in the sector in terms of the pl plurality of givers and the total money that we can get into the system. That does mean we can't just come with the same old thing, right? And I think this is part of the challenge is that our messages tend to be pretty generic, they're pretty transactional. What we know is, and you know, our, our recent report really shows this. I mean, it builds on last year's report. We got some baseline idea of just all of the ways that people give. And now what we're seeing is that everywhere in the world, and this is very true in the US, is that the people give in many, many ways and they want more opportunities to give. Probably more true the younger you get, but just generally speaking, it's very rare for a donor to only give in one way. And so if we think about this as an organization, what that means is meeting people where they are, as you said, means giving them more of those opportunities to be involved in your mission. So the best way to get more donations and more donors is to not always be about the donation, giving stuff like there's just lots of like thinking about all those ways that somebody can feel like they're part of your mission is increasingly important. And, and that's how we can, and that's the answer to how we up that frequency and that, that engagement without it always seeming like, oh, they're just in my pocket again. Larger organizations in particular tend to sort of dismiss grassroots, smaller individual gifts. And I've always felt like that was a huge mistake because that's top of the funnel, it's lead generation, it's paid lead generation. And then you can leverage those folks for volunteering or advocacy in due course. How have you seen organizations be successful in doing that? And why has there been resistance towards it? Well, first I want to say like there are practices that that are that are problematic and and our system is has been getting the outcome is designed for, which is more money from fewer people, right? Until you have an economic downturn like we're facing right now, and then and then it's less money from fewer people. But some of that is driven not by by scarcity mentality, which is a problem, but by the actual circumstances. If your organization is on is under enormous strain, you know, fivefold demand for your services compared to the previous year, and you need a lot of money in the door next month, you can believe that the long-term resilience of your organization requires a broad base of support, but you're still going to spend your time trying to get one person to write you a big check. I get that there's many ways that 
we don't have the incentives and the system is not aligned to, to kind of provide the, uh, an environment for success. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that now we're in the situation where those that we cannot rely on those large donors the way we have. And so now it's not just a, an option we're not we're not leveraging, but in fact, a necessity that we have to get on board. So how do you know, yes, how, how do I see some success? Well, one is you got to de-silo. You've got to stop thinking about your storytelling, your communications, your marketing, your development as different functions. If you want to engage more broadly, you want to invite all givers, which is also an equity issue, then you need to think about the the totality of that conversation with your constituents, not as siloed as it is. And, you know, then there's some other practices like I see some organizations breaking out of the mold of, for example, the best fundraiser, the path is toward major gifts officer. That's where your best fundraiser goes. There, you know, organizations that are more successfully leveraging are, this are seeing that they have to organize internally in a way that recognizes that there is that these things are interdependent. Part of it is your future, and part of it is we cannot like this this idea that we're going to all just scramble for the dollars from a shrinking pool of donors is obviously not sustainable. One area of opportunity that I know you and I are both focused on, you know, certainly driving more revenue towards high impact programs, certainly driving funding for more innovative programs uh, at the foundation level. There's so much renewal of past grants that new guys have a hard time getting into the mix. But, but a big one, you know, you mentioned it earlier, is the $300 billion locked up in donor advised funds. And this is money that has already been given. People have already claimed the tax deduction. They can't get that back, yet it, it just continues to sit there. What should our role be in unlocking that money? And, and you know, how do we create the right incentives and the right engagement to start freeing that up? The main issue there is actually about the ask. I'm actually pretty hopeful that, that this year we're going to see an uptick, a substantial uptick in, in the money coming out of DAFs. I think that we saw grants out of DAFs being a substantial mitigating factor in the 2008-9 recession. I do think we're going to see if we've got those larger donors who are deploying less directly that that they're going to be personally incentivized to to grant out of their DAFs. I think that the challenge that organizations face is just like, how do I figure out where those donors are? It's telling that Giving Tuesday has from time to time been a huge day for grants out of DAFs, regardless of whether the DAF sponsor is actually activating. And I think that that's that actually points to where the missed opportunity is. Those donors are getting asked a lot and they've got this money and it's ready to go and you want to be part of the fun, right? The, the urgency of of Giving Tuesday as a moment drives you to want to take an action and hey, it's really easy because it's effectively free. And I think that it's not just Giving Tuesday that can kind of unlock that. There's perhaps twofold challenge there. One is how do you identify those donors and no, and then the other is this sort of expectation that they're going to be different than other donors, right? That you have to make some sort of more substantial case and you have to only think big dollars. I don't think that's true. I think that, again, segmentation is key. We've seen the average size of those DAFs over the years come down, right? So they're being driven by a bigger kind of middle of the road size DAF, both those things suggest to me that there's an opportunity for shorter term, more frequent gifting out of these DAFs. But that that's not that's not going to be driven by the donor. That's got to be driven by organizations approaching those donors. You said there's a large challenge for nonprofits to identify who the DAF holders are and access them. And you also mentioned DAF holders being personally incentivized to start clearing those funds out. Is, is something going on? Like, is there legislation in the works? Like, where do you think that personal incentive comes from? Well, I think at the end of the day, what it comes from is wanting to have an impact. And, you know, I think one of the things that the, that the research shows is that those DAFs actually move more quickly than people expect. And part of the reason why it's not as clear is because they've been growing like crazy and there is a lag, right? And so the result of that is it looks like they're more stagnant than they actually are. And then the flip side being that we we saw a lot of DAF movement, like DAFs were demonstrably mitigating factor over the last recession when there was a lot less money in those DAFs and there were a lot fewer fund holders. So I think the biggest missed opportunity is those fund holders just not being engaged 
frequently enough and a kind of expectation that a DAF fund holder always looks the same. It is always going to be thinking very long term. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think in a lot of cases, you've got sort of mid-sized DAFs that were started by somebody who had an immediate kind of tax incentive situation and wanted to take it opportunity to set themselves up to do some good. And then it's sitting there because they're not getting engaged by enough organizations often enough. It makes me start to think tactically about credit card donation forms and things, just asking the question if somebody has a DAF, just so you can get that information and remarket to them later. I mean, it is certainly like like that identification. I mean, it's still a, a minority of people that have DAFs, right? And it's one of the challenges actually in getting good research into DAF usage is because they're not well understood by even the fund holders themselves. And, and that makes it challenging to, to get to some tactics. What's your take on effective altruism? They've had a rocky couple of years as well. And how do you think that that does or does not incentivize those larger gifts? I think that, you know, if we think about this in turn, again, in terms of donor segmentation, there are donors that that's that they're going to be very motivated by really trying to investigate where can I get what I feel like is going to be the most impact on the things I care about most and make an investment that is substantial that's going to move the needle on that. And that's great. And I think that's perfectly valid. I don't agree that it's like, and we need to move all donors that direction, even if it means we get a lot less money overall. That kind of absolutism doesn't benefit anybody. I think that also what we find is that, I mean, what is the biggest day of the year for people researching the finances and missions of nonprofits? It's Giving Tuesday, and not by a small amount, by like orders of magnitude. So Giving Tuesday lowers that barrier to engagement and and donation but the expectation that 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 proliferation is going to reduce the kind of the the inquiry into the sector and the causes and the organizations is in fact false it is the best driver of inquiry and thoughtfulness around giving so these are not mutually exclusive things at all and and i think part of the challenge is people thinking that they are the other component of this is if we're going to really get into what is effective, we need to hear from the people who are impacted. And too often those people are left out of that conversation and that's not okay, right? Like, first of all, it's bad data. Secondly, it's inequitable. And those are two serious problems that ultimately undermine the entire effort, right? And I think one of the ways we can kind of get at this is not just by looking at the quote beneficiaries, but look at the communities of givers. People give all the time, every day, in lots of ways. Most giving does not involve a nonprofit. Most giving is not monetary. If we observe how people close to problems solve those problems, that's going to be a really good indicator of where you should make your investment, your financial investment in solving those problems as partners with the people in those communities, as, as opposed to some sort of institutional approach that that is going to magically know where the money is best spent. As I've been embarking on this journey of, of altruists, a lot of people in the sector have asked, like, why not just do GiveWell? Like, why not just be GiveWell or something like that? And to me, I think GiveWell is great. I'm a, I'm a fan of what they do. I think it's a, it's a cool thing. But to your point, like, if you're only recommending a handful of organizations and a very narrow band of cause categories, it leaves a ton of people out of the conversation, both on the on the constituent side as well as on the donor side. And part of that conversation is the donations, right? Like when we look at one of the things that's really clear from our look back is that we have this segment of generosity that's really having a problem, and that's participation and nonprofit fundraising. And and gener but but generosity more broadly is much more resilient, much more robust, and not cannibalistic. We're failing to engage, and that's not just bad for us. It also robs those people of agency, right? If we're only paying attention to this shrinking pool of large donors, then those are the people who have more voice in how problems are solved and how the nonprofit sector evolves. If we invite more people into the conversation, part of that conversation being their money, then we give them more agency. And frankly, they're already there. They're solving the problems. And if you're taking care of your community, you need the food bank less. So these are should not be considered sort of disconnected or competitive behaviors. 
that scarcity mentality is exactly what's preventing us from tapping into this. And it's unfair. You spoke last time about don't just ask people for data, but ask what people want to learn about uh, and, and be a partner in that learning. How have you continued thinking about that? How has that shown up in your work over the past couple of years? And, and how do you think that folks should be engaging with questions around, around impact, asking those, those right questions? Since you and I last spoke, we've kind of overhauled our methodology and our taxonomy for understanding generosity. And we really do believe that looking at all the ways people give is a really important indicator in, uh, for impact. And we had to change our approach. And, and now, in fact, as we take those tools and we, and we roll them out around the world, we're having to ensure that we adjust the approach so that we can be relevant in the different places and cultures that we're deploying these instruments and still comparable across regions, which is a whole challenge. But, but partly it just became deconstructing and trying to delabel these behaviors so we can see what's actually going on. Because if you ask people if they volunteer, a lot of them will say no. If you ask the people who say no about their behavior, they're all volunteering, right? They're just, yeah, it's just if you ask them about volunteering, different people have different expectations of what that word means. And in some communities, giving in your community is just a first principle of citizenship. It's not even considered something extra you do. And so to untangle that, we really need to shift how we look at what that environment is. And, and that's really helped us to, to start to get at how people deploy their resources to make change. And that's a lot more nuanced and rich than how are people, quote, giving, which has in the past really been focused on how people are donating money to nonprofits. Hi, Mike here. I'd like to take a quick time out from the episode to let you know a little bit more about a project we're working on called Altruist. There's a deeply held secret in the nonprofit space, which for some of you may be just a little bit controversial, and that is philanthropy does not equal impact. The challenges faced by our global community are more complex and urgent than ever before. And for philanthropic funders who care about impact, for those passionate about really moving the needle on important social issues, there's very little information available to help guide the decision-making around their investments. That's where Altruist comes in, by seeking out the best, most innovative and promising high-impact solutions, by combining top-quality impact measurement, evaluation, and analysis with insights into social good organizations that focuses on strength and sustainability rather than overhead. Altruist helps funders of all kinds, philanthropists, family offices, foundations, and businesses, direct their resources to the programs and organizations best equipped to solve the challenges they care most about in the regions of the world they're most interested in supporting. With personalized recommendations, engaging multimedia storytelling, seamless funding execution, Altruist levels the playing field, creates unprecedented efficiencies, and most importantly, drives funding to the most impactful social good organizations around. For more information, check us out at www.altruist.org. That's www.altruous.org. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. Have you observed many differences culturally between regions of the world and how they contribute their resources? For sure. And similarities. And so at a high level, one of the similarities is most people give in multiple ways everywhere in the world. And that means giving directly to people in need, means giving to nonprofits, it means giving through structured, organized systems like mutual aid networks that are not necessarily incorporated. It means giving money, it means giving things, it means giving time, it means advocacy. And again, people are doing more than one of these things in both those, across both those dimensions. Now, in different places, those things will skew more towards sort of formalized nonprofit giving or, or not. Uh, in some places, things skew more monetary than others. And in some cases, it's like, you know, if you're giving money, it's more likely to be directly to a person in need. But if you're doing something else, it's more likely through a mutual aid network. Certainly, there are nuances in that respect. But the, what's most interesting is just how everywhere it's multidimensional and, and not by a little, like by a lot. In, and, and we see this in the U.S. 
only giving some it's very rare for someone to be only giving money to a nonprofit. In fact, it's very rare for someone only to be giving money. Most giving in the US does not involve a nonprofit. Also, when we look at communities within the US, there are definitely communities and cultures within the American context where giving looks different. And some of those people are frankly less engaged, less likely to be approached and solicited or invited to participate by nonprofits for a whole bunch of reasons, some of which are just circumstantial. And, but ultimately, we're talking about systemically, there's a bunch of people being left out of that engagement. And yet, that doesn't mean that those people give less. People are generous. As we talk about so much of giving being emotionally driven, as we talk about meeting people where they're at, you know, having somebody volunteer or advocate for a cause, just as long as they're having a good experience with your organization, as long as you're engaging with them well and sending the appropriate asks and appropriate acknowledgements, really that deepens the emotional connection and the lifetime value. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, you know, you say it's intuitive. It is. And the data do definitely back it up that these behaviors are, are mutually supportive and not competitive, uh, whether it's, you know, mutual aid versus giving to a nonprofit or giving to an individual versus some some sort of organized cause. But there's there's a lot of scarcity expectation in our in our sector. And, uh, you know, partly what I think First of all, the data don't support that we're in a scarcity environment, even when dollars and donations are down. The, there's there's more elasticity in that marketplace than we give it credit for, and and the systems and the actions we take te are tending to get us this contrary result. And part of what we've been saying to to people who are unsure about how to kind of wade into that is just simply to think about what if you were in an abundance environment, what would you do differently? if you thought there was abundance and not scarcity? How would your organization act? And interestingly, if the answers to that look a lot like what happens on Giving Tuesday, fewer barriers, more celebration, more people being invited on whatever terms, right? Uh, Donor-centric communications, partnerships between organizations and across sectors, right? Like all of these things that demonstrably work to drive participation. And so as soon as we let go of that scarcity mentality, it unlocks all kinds of opportunity. How have you seen collaboration evolve in this sort of uncertain world? Are, are, are folks working together well? Is there a renewed spirit of collaboration between organizations? How does it look today? It's hard for me to say whether which way that that is trending, because I think it ebbs and flows. What I see, you know, that has been compelling in terms of what works is organizations who are thinking about what are other organizations, including not necessarily registered charities, but just other organized groups complementing my mission in the same similar cause area. Thinking about people who give directly to people in need, not as that recipient as a as a competitor, but rather as a, an indicator of somebody who's likely to be supportive of your cause and what you do, right? Like just, just flipping that uh, frame of mind organizations who serve the same recipient group, but in different ways coming together. We've seen tons of collaboration like that um, on Giving Tuesday. And then organizations with the same mission, but different geography, that often unlocks a bit of collaboration that, that otherwise you'd be worried about. And then, oh, it looks like, in fact, we have a lot more opportunity when we work together. And then community-based stuff, which is the obvious one, right? Like community movements on Giving Tuesday is a big thing. We see the, and this is true just on Giving Days in general, it doesn't have to be Giving Tuesday. That's often a catalyst for organizations to be like, oh, we can work together. And it tends to work out really well, which I, I do think will tend to push the trend more in that direction. Again, though, the more you're focused on large donor stewardship and the short-term need, the more likely you are to fall back into the, the sort of competitive scarcity approaches. It can be challenging to kind of maintain the momentum of those collaborations, but I think it's really critical if we're going to break out of some of these models that just are not delivering for us. I see a big trend towards two things that I fundamentally disagree with. One is the real data standardization. Of saying it, it costs one specific amount to generate a specific outcome across organizations and regions of the world. Can you weigh in a little bit on that? Like, how do you look at efficiency with an organization and how to determine who's being high impact versus not? I mean, again, first of all, I think that there isn't enough deliberate, like intentional conversation with the people that we're supposed to be serving 
as as the primary data stream for whether whatever we're doing is successful. So I think that's that's really a critical component. Then the other thing is, you know, I think we should be thinking about these measures of effectiveness first and foremost in terms of how they serve the organizations that are trying to achieve their mission. You know, the example that has been often given is, you know, here's a food bank in this place and and here's a food bank in a similar geography. And this one, it costs $5 per sandwich delivered. And this one, it costs three. So obviously, the one in whatever, Michigan, is more efficient. That's where your money should go. Well, no one gives like that, right? No one's going to be like, oh, well, I guess I'm going to help the people in Michigan and not where I live because it only costs $3 per sandwich, right? Like, that is just not how most donors also what's going on there, right? Like the most important thing there is not how do we use this information to direct donor dollars? The most important use of that information is what's going on? What's different? Because maybe there's just something different about delivering a sandwich in San Francisco that matters, that maybe that's another fundamental problem that some other organization has a mission to solve, right? Or maybe it's just useful context. And also who's going to be most served best served by that difference right the best constituent to serve with that information are the people that are supposed to be getting sandwiches in san francisco right like how can we help that food bank learn maybe there is something they can learn from that and so if we think about our effectiveness measures as first and foremost in service to the mission then first of all we're we're creating a system where people might actually be incentivized to get good effectiveness measures and secondly, we're actually going to be solving a problem as opposed to trying to create some kind of punishing free market marketplace that where only the only the Michigan homeless will get served sandwiches. I had the pleasure of speaking with John Moore, who's the chief information officer over the MacArthur Foundation, and we spoke about the philanthropy data commons. I'm curious what the collaboration is like between the Giving Tuesday data commons and the philanthropy data commons. The data commons, our mission really is to understand in actionable ways the entire ecosystem of generosity, which is a big remit. The theory of change here is that if we provide the organizations and the groups who are trying to do good with the data environment to make evidence-based decisions and create evidence-based interventions, that they're going to be able to be more, more effectively serve their missions, which means more resilient social sector, and better outcomes and thriving communities. Now, part of that is about measuring the ways that people give all of the time, because that's that's what we need to understand better in, in order to essentially meet people in, in their personal missions. And so to do that, we I mean we kind of look at this in three areas. We look at the the economics, the nonprofit economics, and we have data assets and products for the social sector to to really get high fidelity trends on that giving economy we look at holistically like what are all of the other ways people give and we're doing this on a really granular way on an ongoing basis so we survey people every week about their previous week's giving behavior across many dimensions when we also look at what's motivating their giving and their values and their their view of crisis in the world and a bunch of other stuff and we have demographic data so it really helps us to get immediate understanding of how these behaviors intersect and interact and what moves the needle on this stuff and then the third major sort of area of inquiry is just what what are movement dynamics and learning and culture how does that disseminate through a network like ours and what does that teach us about how to deploy best practice more rapidly really looking at the giving tuesday network as the model for that um, not just for our own cause but for others like climate mitigation and then we build infrastructure like we're building the technology that is necessary in order to achieve that and we're doing that in an extensible way so that there are various stakeholders can kind of plug into that and build their own pieces of that puzzle building that on top of our tech stack i mean our objectives are about more giving more resilience in the social sector enabling innovation and the agency of individual givers and and we have you know specific outcomes we're looking for in in all of those categories and we act I, I guess the other thing is that there are kind of three principles that we that we build this on one is that we're about relationships over technology so we're in many ways a tech company but we build the technology on the relationships 
and you know you you met you your comment about standardization like it's not about it's not about creating a data standard and a platform and asking people to participate it's literally the other way around and ensuring that our our various stakeholders get value out of this first and foremost and that's how we get their help in achieving our mission and then the second is what we call ruthless pragmatism the idea being that the right answer written on a napkin is better than the wrong answer through the quote perfect process and so we we believe in systems we build systems we we want to clean up technical debt we want to have process we want it to be replicable we want we want to have all of our data assets easily available and and interoperable but again it's outcome focused in order to deliver on those relationships and the third is what we call garbage in by design again yes standards right we we implemented the microsoft common data model across all of our financial stuff because we want to be interoperable and that's a key way to ensure that people organizations are getting value out of our data assets but we make the getting to standardization our problem not on the input end so we take the data however it comes we do want to gradually improve that pipeline but the idea is that the hard work of standardization normalization cleaning is done on our end so it's not an obstacle to participation and again we're not doing this hey there have been a number of other attempts over the years to be like we have a data standard if everyone just complies with our data standard then things will be great we take the opposite approach do you guys work at all with the philanthropy data commons yeah, we've been talking to those guys a lot, um, offering v variety of ways that we might support that work. I mean, it's a great example of like an effort that we we may have assets that can support that, but we don't need ever like we don't need to own anything. Uh, we're quite happy to to kind of fill in gaps in the infrastructure where it exists. And I think you know what I what I like about the way those guys are thinking right now is, yeah, they're thinking like like. The, the the output is some standardized tools um but the, but the thought process is about like how is this actually useful to users that's the that sort of incentive piece has got to be first and foremost because otherwise again it's just one more standard nobody's going to care about how do you see ai playing into the social sector what have you observed as the opportunities and and the hazards there how has your work evolved since that since ai developed so yeah our, our uh, Generosity AI Working Group is officially launching end of October, and uh, we've got a bunch of partners. I mean, there's there's more than a thousand organizations already involved, and uh, and Microsoft supporting, kind of helping to bring this initial convening together. We're we're thinking about it in two ways. First of all, we want to lend our convening power to the discourse because what we observed very quickly was there were kind of two camps and not much in between. There was we need to take two years and write up some some responsible AI use guidelines that everybody's you know gonna gonna use and and the problem with that is I mean it's the right idea but nothing we do that's gonna take two years or a year or six months is relevant right now this is moving way too fast so we do need some guidance like we need responsible AI use and we need to ensure that we're talking about this stuff but it has to be much more agile so we're looking to help solve that without going to the other extreme, which is the other thing we're seeing, which is like, well, I'll just ask ChatGPT where to deploy my life-saving resources and whatever it tells me will be fine, right? Like we definitely need to be thoughtful and intentional and transparent and careful and have guidelines. But one of the things we need to avoid is the nonprofit sector being le left behind on yet another technical revolution. On the other hand, there's real harm that could be done, and we need to ensure that we're doing this in a way that absolutely mitigates that harm. And so we're looking at, at helping to, to provide a forum for some meaningful discussion and, and guidelines coming out of this from that, which will be officially launching uh, last week of October. The other part of this is actual tools and resources for the sector. So we're using this stuff, we're developing things. I mean, in some ways, some of the promise of these new uh, technologies are enormous for for an organization like ours who has really vast but very very disparate data assets that you know we've got a roadmap for how these things gradually come together and start to be interoperable and and we've made some good progress but some of these tools provide the potential to unlock this extraordinarily rapidly
And we imagine in the short term, very short term, a situation where you'll be able to ask our data questions in natural language. Now, when can we do that? We're like weeks away, maybe days away from being able to do that. When will we get accurate answers? Not so sure. So, so we're, we're creating an environment where we can bring in engineers and technologists and researchers into a, our sandbox and get access to our data, get access to the, the tools we're creating to iterate on in, an, in a, a transparent but sandboxed environment where we'll have some of these sort of fundamental things like query libraries, training text, right? Like these things that we can help work on together. Uh, and all that's getting launched in October. And it's not just us. Like this is going to be many, many different organizations and, and researchers working together. We're not, we're just looking to ensure that the parts we're doing are maximally extensible. What, what's, what's next for you guys, you know, over the maybe slightly longer term, five to 10 years? Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the major changes for us since the last time you and I spoke is is the growth of Giving Tuesday through our geographic hubs. So we're now ninety seven countries in the Giving Tuesday movement, and one of the ways that we started to support that distributed network of leaders is with these hubs. So India, East Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean, uh, U.S. and Canada and uh, looks like we'll be launching something in Europe soon. So this has been a really, really effective way for us to catalyze growth in those areas and support those regions in doing more, as well as informing each other, like learn cross-cultural learning, like really accelerating that substantially. So I think that for us, that's gonna be, I mean, certainly for the data commons and also just for our other initiatives, we're really leaning in hard into that strategy, which is gonna mean, increasingly global view of all of these things where you know our, our latest report certainly takes a step in that direction now we really have the ability to with teams on the ground to take the these approaches and make them more more relevant and and expand in scope all around the world what's one thing that everybody in the social sector believes to be true that's just not and what are the biggest blind spots right now in the sector I think it probably comes down to scarcity. I think that that we keep looking at the evidence and the data from the most negative possible viewpoint. We are not in a scarcity environment. We there is an abundance of generosity, and um, and I don't think that notwithstanding various suppressing effects for here and there, the fact is that's the prevailing environment is one of abundance. What is the most important cause that humanity can be tackling today? What would it be? Yeah, so I mean, one of the things I'll say is one of the themes that I, I heard when I was, I was at a, a sector event um, in Uganda last year, one of the themes was that women and girls, climate change and uh, social equity, all problems are those three problems. Intersectionality is a real thing, right? That said, think about climate change is becoming uh, an increasingly acute problem. That's a good example of something we don't solve without some broad systems change. And that's going to mean lots of different things. Like we can't just, there's no such thing as just attacking, attacking climate change and just doing climate mitigation. You can't get there without lots of other systemic change. I was at an event where I'm talking about uh, climate change at, at Harvard, their their GEM event, which is a really interesting conference. And I was really struck by, you know, pe people talking about much of Africa is without electricity still, and that isn't okay. And so to to just impose a climate neutral approach to to those people who are without like electricity in those communities without electricity, without thinking about what that means for their right we we can't just solve one problem or the other that's that's just not going to work first of all it's not fair secondly it's just not practical it's not pragmatic so yeah climate change if i had to pick one climate change and all we need to do to fix climate change is fix all the things when you're ready to retire or move on to another adventure or go travel or whatever the case might be what's something that you would like to look back on this part of your career and feel proud to have accomplished? Part of our mission is, is to really modernize this industry and 
provide the kind of provide really foundational infrastructure. The co- the lack of that infrastructure has real human cost. Right? It's not just about organizations being good at fundraising. It's about the fact that organizations aren't as able to achieve their missions without this fundamental infrastructure. So if I were to look back after I retire in three years and say, yeah, that we were successful, it would be that that, that fundamental infrastructure is in place and that, and that this entire sector around the world has turned the corner on its ability to make evidence-based decisions. Who's somebody in the space that you, you're connected with or that you've just observed out there in the world that you really respect and admire their work? So first of all, we, we've got a couple of uh, board members who I've just learned so much from. Uh, Asim Khwaja at, at the Harvard Kennedy School, uh, really, really fascinating thought leader on global development. Rob Reich, of course, who's our board chair. I've learned so much from those two that's been really valuable. In the sector, you know, I've been uh, lately, but most recently, I, I really appreciate Tim Sarantonio at Neon One, who's been really thinking about, he would probably say, influenced in part by Giving Tuesday, really thinking about, about collaboration uh, as a force multiplier, as opposed to uh, uh, reducing the, their competitive advantage. And it seems to be doing really well for them. I'm very impressed. Actually, another platform leader that I really admire is, is Soraya Alexander at Classy and GoFundMe, because I think the the thought that she's brought to that to that merger has been really inspiring. It could have been could have gone a bunch of ways, and I, I really appreciate how she's bringing that organization to think about again outside of the scarcity mentality. What are the ways we can connect? organizations serving causes and individuals doing good with individuals to, to uh, again, to, to get more. And there's some really interesting research opportunities and, uh, and it does come from that abundance mindset and I think is going to unlock a lot of good things. As folks want to engage more with you and with Giving Tuesday, where do people find the, the most recent report? Where do people engage with the data commons? How do people access and support the work? Yeah, so givingtuesday.org slash data is a great place to go as a first stop. You can find our stuff there and uh, lots of other resources, of course. Woodrow, thanks so much for coming back on the show. You're welcome anytime. Really enjoy the conversation. Enjoy collaborating and and learning from from you and, and the work that you're doing. Always a pleasure. Thanks. That's our show for this week. Big thank you to Woodrow and his team for making this episode happen. You can learn more about his work and find all the information you need to take advantage of the amazing opportunity Giving Tuesday presents at givingtuesday.org. If you enjoy the show, please follow, subscribe, or leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share the link with any friends or colleagues you think might find it valuable. We have a bit of a two-for-one next week with the co-founders of an incredible India-based nonprofit, Karia. Manu Chopra and Vivek Sashadri talk about Karia's work elevating the economic prospects of India's poor while helping some of the biggest names in artificial intelligence improve the effectiveness of their products. Manu and Vivek, along with their third co-founder, Safia Hussain, are recent graduates of Fast Forward's Accelerator program and are already out there driving some incredible impact. Until then, Cause and Purpose is a production of Altruist.org. On behalf of myself, Woodrow, and our entire team, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to speaking with you again soon.